Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. If you have a Bible, then you can turn to Ephesians chapter um, 5. That's where I'm going to read from um, briefly. Let me ask a question as we start. How many of you uh, believe that dreams uh, can actually come uh, to pass? How many of you believe dreams, uh, even far-fetched dreams, can come true? You know, in 1963, this weekend, MLK Jr., uh, um, the weekend of his birth, we um, honor him as a country uh, and we know that um, in 1963, it was August 28th, I, actually, I believe, in a sweltering hot um, summer day, he stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial before the seated, you know, great emancipator of our country and, uh, and King in the same spot that Marian Anderson had um, stood about 25 years before singing, you know, America, America. God shed his grace on thee, a, a, a signal moment in American history when she was there. Now King stands in her very place and his speech is referred to as what? The I have a dream um, speech, right? I have a dream, he said. And he painted a picture of a beautiful community, didn't he? He said, I have a dream. Even in Alabama, even where there's so much racism, he said, the little black boys and little black girls will one, hold, once, one day hold hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. I have a dream. I remember as a child, I was so mesmerized. I would listen to that over and over and over. Just the, the power of oratory um, captured the sound of his voice, um, the, the glory of the picture he um, painted and, uh, you know, while progress has been painfully slow towards Dr. King's dream, it is certainly coming to pass. You know, when Diane and I came here 40 years ago, it was with a dream, not just to start a church, but to create a beautiful community, to spark a renewed affection for the church of Jesus Christ. When we came here, somebody gave uh, me wise advice. They said, don't ask, if you want God's blessing, don't ask God to bless what you're doing. Find out what God's doing, and then you'll have his blessing. Um, really good advice. Don't ask God to bless your mission. Discover what his mission is and join it, right? So what's his mission? So Stan, I'm gonna read it to you from Ephesians chapter five, just three verses there's scripture, it's scripture that's oft used. Uh, Paul writes uh, to the Ephesians, it's about marriage, it's marital advice, but he draws uh, his wisdom from the mission of Jesus. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What does Jesus love? He loves the church. What's Jesus' mission? It's to make her beautiful. 
Lord Jesus Christ in our midst, we pray that you'd come this morning and accomplish those same aims. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our church is beginning the year by asking, who is God? What is God like? I mean, after all, how do you know who God is? We can't um, see him, right? Um, and so last week, Brandon talked about the omniscience of God coming. We'll talk about the omnipresence, the omnipotence of God. But how can you know who God is? The Bible says you can know who God is through his creation, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And we know that. You stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and, uh, and you are in awe. You look up in the stars of the sky and, uh, and we are in awe of the creator of all of this. So the heavens declare the glory of God. We know that um, the Bible, right? We, um, we, we know who God is because he revealed himself. He told us um, who he is. He shepherded the recording of those things and safeguarded it through history so that we have this revelation of God. How do we know who God is? We know who God is because he sent his son. John chapter one, verse 18 um, says, who has seen God, right? Well, the one who sat by his side, he reveals him, right? Um, Jesus himself, of course, God comes in human flesh and, uh, and he is revealed to us. But there's another way that you can know God. And this is the most sort of red, red, you know, a, a non-Christian, a, a skeptic, somebody far from God may not uh, want to read the Bible. They might not have any interest in the Bible. They might even try and find no traction there. But very often they will have the opportunity to be exposed to a Christian or to walk into a community of Christians, what we call a church. So the church is the way you know God. If you want to know what God's like, then you check his family out because his family will be a reflection uh, of him. One theologian said, the deepest reason for our personal problems is that we don't know how beautiful God is. We're not smitten with the beauty of God. Well, where would we discover how beautiful God is? The church exists for that very reason, to be a reflection of his beauty. Now, yes, many are disillusioned by, by, by the church. Many are disillusioned by greedy preachers living in splendid mansions, driving uh, uh, um, expensive SUVs. Many are um, disillusioned by lecherous um, priests um, by churches that have been co-opted by political factions, by churches that have abandoned orthodoxy and capitulated to culture's values, or by churches that are just boring or bickering or harsh, right? The church is to be a place where people are startled by the beauty of God, by the beauty of his people, by the laughter and the joy and the selflessness and the love. The church is to be a place where people are startled. So David Brooks, not a, a Christian, a, a writer for the New York Times, a couple years ago was converted. David Brooks was, uh, is Jewish and he became a follower of Jesus. And Brooks um, said recently to anybody who lives in the secular culture, he lives in New York City, he knows of what he speaks. To anybody who lives in the secular culture, one's first encounter with a joyful, intelligent Christian comes as something of a shock. 
It's unnerving to encounter a Christian you would on balance very much like to be. See, for a secular person to actually meet a Christian and say, I wish I was them. I mean, that's a shock. That's not uh, expected. To walk into a church that's filled with happy, joyous, welcoming, loving um, people united in a mission of serving their community, it is a shock. It is surprising, I, I will tell you, week after week to hear people walk out of this church on one of their first times, if not their very first attending here to say, this was not what I expected. Now that could be a compliment. <laughs> it could be the opposite. But, but whatever they encountered was not what they expected um, when they walked in. They're startled um, by what they encountered. Some people said, I've gone to church my whole life, but I never experienced what I experienced um, today. So this is one of my favorite books and one of my favorite accounts. It's written by Philip Haley. It's called Lest Innocent Blood um, Be Shed. It's a story of Le Chambon. Now, Haley was a, uh, a scholar and he was studying um, uh, evil, particularly a, a oppression of, uh, of people. So he um, had studied uh, what happened to the Indians in our own country's history, what happened to slaves around the world who were oppressed. And now he was studying the Holocaust and, and he was particularly focusing on the evil done to children, Jewish children who were taken and used for medical experimentation and uh, uh, little children whose bones were broken just to study the healing process. And then when they healed a little bit, they were broken again. And then when they healed a little bit, they were broken again. And little children being treated like laboratory rats and, uh, and Halley described, he was searching the ancient catacombs, you know, the, the libraries of, of Europe, digging up um, archives that nobody had visited and reading about some of this um, evil. He said the darkness that settled on him, the, 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 the sense of weight, the sense of ugliness, the sense of almost hopelessness for humanity that he was experiencing. It was a project he wanted to abandon, um, looking into this uh, darkness and, uh, and then one day he said, he studied across this small French village in the south of France called Les Chambon. And, and the story of a, a Protestant reformed um, pastor and, and his congregation throughout this mountainous community that sheltered 5,000 Jewish children during the Holocaust. They hid them. Not one of them was ever discovered and the Nazis tried and the Nazis tried to infiltrate and even the Vichy French who collaborated with the um, Nazis could make no headway in this community of Christians. They arrested the pastor. They arrested the assistant pastor. They both went to concentration camps. And uh, Halley said as he was reading, he'd never heard the story. He didn't know anything about it. He said his eyes were getting cloudy. He thought there was dust in his eyes. And then he realized there was moisture all over his cheeks and, and tears were falling on his desk as he studied because in the midst of all of the darkness, there was this beautiful light. That's what the church is to be. That's what it was, right? In, in, in the 1940s, in a little village in France, the church was light in the midst of dark. He interviewed, Halley interviewed the pastor's wife. She said, in the darkness of evil, our little village was a rainbow. That's what the church is to be. 
Let's talk about it together. You got a sermon outline. The, how does a church become beautiful? It's grace. That's the first. It's beautiful grace. It's love. It's the love that God has for unlovely, unworthy um, people. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not as a result of your effort or works. Nobody can boast about grace. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone, Martin Luther said, is the doctrine upon which Christianity rises and falls. The church becomes beautiful only if it understands that we're reconciled to God um, by the work of Jesus. We're reconciled to God. We experience the Father love of God because God the Father sent his Son into the world to accomplish what needed to be to reconcile us. That God actually wants relationship with us even though we're utterly undeserving, even though we've been vile, even though we've hated him, he loves us. And that his own Son comes into the world to keep every law that we failed to keep, to be the only perfect one, to be the only one who does what we were all supposed to be and do. Jesus comes and keeps all the law for us. And then all the sin and transgression and wrong that we've done, instead of falling on us, instead of us having to bear the burden of that and the the weight, the punishment, Jesus bears it himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries on the cross because he's the sin bearer for all his brothers and sisters. It's astounding truth that has transformative power uh, in our lives. I told you the story of a little girl, a little high school girl that came to me after I spoke somewhere. And she came up and she said, Pastor, you nailed it. I've been living for myself. I've been living to please myself. It doesn't work. I'm so empty. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to live to try to earn the pleasure of God. She said, did I got it, right? I said, no. No, it's... It's good that you realize that living to please yourself is empty and vacuous, but um, I don't want you to get up in the morning and try to go out and live uh, in such a way that you'll please God. I want you to get up in the morning and believe that you have a savior in Jesus who pleased God for you. He kept every law that you'll never keep. You'll never be worthy of God's pleasure. Jesus is worthy. And because of him, you get it. It's called double imputation. Not only are our sins given to Jesus for which he dies, but his perfect righteousness is given to us so that we get to appear as a bride, as a virginal bride, a pure bride covered in the beauty of Jesus before, um, before God. It's astounding love. And so the church becomes beautiful as it rests in the security of being the beloved, knowing that we have the face of God. We have the smile of God. We have the love of our Father. We are the sheep um, that the good shepherd searched for and found. It's the beauty that emanates from prodigals who experience the kiss of the Father who welcomes us at our very worst. So to create this beauty, this doctrine has to not just be subscribed to, but it has to be incarnated. A lot of churches would profess everything I just said, but if you went in those churches, people would be arrogant, harsh. Um, They would be um, self-righteous. Self-righteousness is the very opposite of Jesus' righteousness. We can't produce righteousness, yet we act self-righteous. So this grace has to be incarnated in the culture of the church. So how does this grace create beauty? Let me give you a couple examples. Because we have this absolute favor with God that we didn't earn means we can't lose it. We're secure. So we don't have to have it all together to be in the community. 
You can be a mess and be a part of Christ's family. And you are. Every one of you. You're a mess. And yet you're welcome here. One pastor said he went to the grocery store and there was a woman and she used to be very regular in church but he hadn't seen her in a while and so he said, we miss you, we miss you, you need to come back. She said, I can't come back, not yet. I'm not, my life's all messed up, my life's all screwed up but, but I'm gonna get there, she said. I've, I've got to get things back together before I come back to church. Oh, oh, so, so wrong. So, so missing it. You don't have to be impressive, right? There's a security and a love that you didn't earn and you can't um, lose. You know, church is, is a safe place. Um, Steve Brown, mentor of mine, said the only people who actually make progress uh, in the faith are people who know if they never make progress, God loves them anyway. God doesn't love them on the basis of our, our report card improving. And only the people who believe that actually have their report card improve, actually make progress in getting this whole thing. You don't have to have it all together. And that's good, because I know you guys, and you don't. Um, <laughs> second, it, your grace undercuts harshness and superiority. It opens the door for honesty. You know, two men went up to the temple to pray, the Bible says. One man um, was a tax collector, vile, and the other was a religious leader. And the tax collector fell on his face and said, God, have mercy to me, a sinner. And the religious leader said, God, thank you, I'm not like him. Thank you that I'm not like him. That's, that's ugliness. Um, but if you understand you're secure, you can start to tell the truth about yourself. Men can go to their small group, you know, the door's just open for honesty and they can confess their struggles with pornography. And women can go to their small group and confess, you know, I really don't like being a mother. And sometimes I don't like my children. And you know what, when those men and those women confess in those groups, they're gonna hear other people say, me too. Let's struggle together. Some say it's safer to confess sin in the bars and clubs of any city than it is to confess sin in churches. I love the story Donald Miller tells. He was uh, in a very uh, extremely liberal college in, in Oregon. And, um, and they had, a, they had a, um, like a festival in the spring. It was like a college version of Burning Man. I mean, there was nudity and nakedness and drunkenness and drugs. It was just like absolute bacchanalia, you know, just absolute um, uh, sin fest, as wild as you can imagine. And, and so there was a group of them that were Christians like, okay, well, we don't go and we're not going to participate, but, but how could we sort of enter in redemptively? And so they came up with this idea. They'd have right in the middle of all this, they would have a confessing booth. Some of you grow up at Catholic, you know, a Catholic, you know what that means, you know. The priest would sit on one side of the screen, you sit on the other, you unload all the dirt about your life and the priest uh, tells you what to do about it. A confessing booth. But this would be different. They weren't gonna sit in the midst of all this carnal activity and invite people to come in and confess their sins. They would invite them to come in and experience something they'd never experienced. Come in and listen to the Christians confess their sins. Come in and sit in a booth and, uh, and hear the Christians tell what was wrong with them. 
And they said, you would not have believed the response. People would come in and listen and they'd go get their friends. Come in and listen too, because they'd never heard it before. You see, when Christians believe they're the biggest sinners in the room, any room they're in, that's beautiful. That they're the ones who need Jesus more than anybody else. And they stop looking at their TV and pointing at people and how vile they are in culture and all these people who are doing all these awful things in libraries to our children. And they realize, I'm the problem. I'm the biggest problem there is in this world. So grace undercuts superiority and makes it safe to tell the truth. You know, and a church becomes then a welcoming place for people who are not really far, you know, close to God, people who are far from home. You know what Jesus' critics said of him derisively? Look at Luke um, chapter seven. This is what his critics said. This is those who killed him said this. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of what? He's the friend of sinners. Jesus, the friend of sinners, the friend of the leper and the Gentile, the Roman soldier, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, the woman thrown at his feet in adultery. Jesus loves broken people. After all, that's all there is. The beautiful community welcomes because they've been welcomed. I had an experience at Christmas Eve that made Christmas Eve for me. So after the service was over, um, one of the three services, out came a a, a young woman. Um, I met her just briefly before the service. And then, um, oh, maybe she's in her young 20s. And uh, and, and, and an attractive uh, young girl, but, but, but had some of the look of life been really hard. And she was out like going out of here like a, a, a bolt. And I happened to catch her eye and said, Merry Christmas. And then later she came back and I was so thrilled and, and her aunt brought her up to me and, um, and said, she needs prayer. Would you pray for her? And I said, how would you like me to pray? And she said, I'm a fentanyl addict. And, um, she said, I've never, you preached about Jesus came into this world to bring us home. We were made for home and we need home. And she said, I've never had a home my whole life. I, I, I resonated with everything you said. She said, I want home. And I said, you know, in the sermon, I talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I asked this little girl, I said, um, do you think you can beat your addiction? She said, I can't. I said, I know who can. You remember Bonhoeffer was in prison because Hitler was about to kill him and his last Christmas was spent in prison. He said it was the perfect place to be at Christmas because it reminded him of what Jesus did. You have locks in your house, right? But they're not a problem because they're on the inside. If you want to go out, you just open the door. Bonhoeffer said the problem in prison is the locks on the other side of the door. Nobody can get out unless somebody from the outside comes and opens the door and lets you out. That's what Christmas is. Jesus comes into the world and he opens the door and he lets us out and he takes us home. And I said that to this girl. I said, Jesus will come and he'll open the door that you can't open and he'll free you from your addiction. And we prayed that she would come home. She would experience home. (laughs) It was so sweet. 
It's what, that's when the church is beautiful. You know, what happens when the wayward son in the Bible comes home to his father? He's stolen his father's money. He's humiliated his father in the village and yet he receives a what? Not only does his father kiss him, but they have a party. When the church throws parties for fentanyl addicts and broken people like us that wander in, it's beautiful. It's grace. Secondly, what makes this community a beautiful community? It's family, because family's beautiful. And Jesus creates family affection. Jesus creates a family of relational connection and brotherly affection. John 13, 34, and um, 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you what? Have love for one another. What does Romans 12 say in verse 10? Love one another with brotherly affection, family affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love in Acts chapter two, it describes the first church, the new church. It says they all who believe were together. They had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they were attending the temple, what? Together. They were breaking bread in their homes together. They received their food together with glad and generous hearts. That's the beauty of the church when they do life. They love doing life together. This mutual affection in Jesus' family is a powerful apologetic. Sam Albury, a pastor in Nashville says, in this cultural moment we find ourselves, there's so much anger and polarization and anxiety that relational beauty more than any other time in my lifetime is so magnetic, so needed, so unusual, and so attractive to people who might not like what we believe, but who find that kind of relational beauty hard to exist. Where in this world can you find relational beauty? In the church. In the church. How is that relational beauty reflected? Let me tell you a couple ways. It's the way we welcome each other. If you've ever been in our church office, then you perhaps run into Kathy McCormick. She is the living embodiment of relational beauty. You walk into our office. I mean, somebody is often called the receptionist. You might think they don't hold the most... Um, culture-shaping position in the church. Kathy McCormick shapes the culture of Seven Rivers Church. When people call, when people encounter, every staff member, when they come in, they want to talk to Kathy. They just want to be around Kathy. They want, something emanates from Kathy, right? I even asked her a couple weeks ago, where did this come from? I need some of this, right? Um, you know, two people told me, Wednesday night we had a program here, two people told me the way they were welcomed the first time they came is what made them stay here. One of the uh, uh, gentlemen has been here 25 years probably. He told me that he came from a terrible church split. Uh, they were uh, so disillusioned and beat up um, and uh, didn't want to come here at all. They wanted him. We met in a gym and this, this young girl named Amy you've been here a long time, you know who that was. Amy Kelso came up and greeted him in such a way that he thought, they really want me here. There's, there's, a, there's love here. 
He'd been here ever since. An African-American couple told me, they said the way we were greeted when we walked through the door the first time told us this is a safe place. This is a place where we're welcome, right? So that relational beauty uh, is reflected in the way we welcome. It's reflected in the way we cheer each other on. You know, um, there's so much discouragement. Um, and and what, is it, what did it say in Galatians 6, 2? Um, you know, or, or in Romans 12, 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Cheer each other on. When I was growing up in, in church, I can remember in the church I grew up in in Miami, when people would say to me, Raymond, God is going to do great things with your life. Why did they say that to this snotty little kid? I mean, I was the fifth kid in my family. Um, I, I, I was the one who got thrown out of church half the time. Um, for, you know, I remember we used to flick communion cups up and hit people in the back of the head after communion. <laughs> was served but they planted in me this idea God's going to use you we see something in you you know you can you can create something in a child in a person you can speak love and truth and hope into people with your words the way we cheer people on you know every time Brandon Lorenzon's name is mentioned as, as the nominee for senior forever at our church claps and you know I got a word for you don't stop keep clapping the work of the senior pastor is hard work he'll need you to cheer for him cheer him on Jody Denning has a group of women in our church and and they were so kind to think of inviting pastor's wives. And, and my wife was one of them. And she was reluctant to go. Who wants to be fond over, you know? And, and she was so glad when she went. She said it was amazing. I felt so loved. This group was amazing. There you have it. Relational affection. The way we welcome. The way we cheer for each other. The way we invest in relationship. I had a friend told me he was walking by a church when it was letting out and nobody was talking to each other. They were just exiting, almost like it was a contest to see who could get to their car first. He said it was weird. It was eerie. He said whatever they'd come to church for, it was clear that they hadn't come for community. Now I grew up in the church and I don't know why, but I love church. Maybe it was sleeping in my mother's lap when I was just a little one. Maybe it was they had the most awesome blocks in the nursery. I can still remember the stuff we got to build. I don't know. I love church. I loved Sunday morning uh, going to church. I didn't complain about it. I went to youth group. I did all that stuff. I loved Sunday school. There was one thing I didn't love, Sunday night church. I hated it. I mean, I gave you my morning. Quit being greedy. Don't ask for any more. Matter of fact, when I started this church, I promised people, if you'll just come in the morning, we won't make you come back. Uh, I'm going to make a deal with you, right? Whatever we got to do, we're going to do it the one time you're here. Um, we're not going to make you go home and turn around and come back. I hated Sunday night church. That's where I'd get thrown out of church all the time. Um, and, um, uh, and then my parents moved. So when I went away to college, they moved. They moved to a church in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, and, uh, and I remember they write, tell me, this church is, uh, is something different. They said, there's, there's an incredible thing happening at this church. So I was anxious to go home. And I remember going there and we went to church in the morning and they said, we're going back on Sunday night. I was like, oh, great. And Sunday night church there was so dynamic. 
because I remember when Sunday night church ended, nobody left. An hour, an hour and a half, people were enjoying each other. It wasn't because it was great food or great coffee. It was people, it was community, it was delight, it was joy. They had to come through and like beat you with a stick to get you to go home. I have a dream. I have a dream. I dreamed of a church where nobody wants to leave. Where nobody wants to leave. Relational beauty is beautiful. And it's beautiful when it's manifested by bearing one another's burdens. That's what it says in Galatians, right? Bear one another's burdens. That's the law. You want to keep the law? Love. That's the law. Love. Help each other. Help the burdened. There's a woman in our church who's being abandoned by her husband. There's a divorce uh, being pressed on her and another woman who's been through it. She knows the law. She's come alongside this other woman. We're going to walk through this together. She says, nobody's going to take advantage of my sister in Christ. When we bear one another's burdens, it's so beautiful. So when I was just three years into ministry, when I was 28 years old, um, the worst day of my life unfolded. It was June 13th, 1986, five o'clock in the morning, my phone rang and it was my dad on the phone. It was my dad's birthday, June 13th. And my dad said, um, your brother, Steve is dead. My brother, Steve lived in Tallahassee. He was the oldest of six children. He was my hero. I wanted to be like Steve my whole childhood. Now he was dead, suddenly, unexplained, unexpected, out of the blue, shocking. I got in the car, I drove my parents to, um, to, I drove up to Tallahassee to pick my parents up at the airport as they came into town to grieve their son. I spent the day with um, uh, his widow and my parents. I drove back on, um, Saturday morning to prepare a sermon because I had to preach Sunday uh, because there was no other preacher here. Um, and I was preaching on starting a Christian school, of all things. First time I ever talked about it. And uh, I preached as so empty was my soul. And um, uh, then I went back to the office and I wrote my brother's memorial service. I grabbed my wife and kids. We drove to Tallahassee for the wake on Sunday night. All of this leading to... Uh, I was scared to death. I was scared to death standing. I mean, in in that wake, I remember my brothers and I just weeping over the loss of our brother, sobbing. And now I had to speak to people the next morning. We had a graveside uh, thing before we had a public, you know, uh, service at a church. And and I said, how am I going to stand at my brother's grave and look look over the top of the casket of my brother into my mother's eyes on the saddest day of her life? She lost her firstborn son. I don't have it. I can't do it. I was, I was so afraid. And it was private. It was just family. And we drove, when, when Diane and I drove into the cemetery, who was waiting at the gates of the cemetery but Ted and Betty Santana and Art and Marion Paulson, two retired couples from our church. This is like nine in the morning, 8.30 in the morning. They came all the way from Citrus County. They drove three hours. They must have left at 5.30 in the morning. 
They couldn't even go to the graveside, but they were standing there by the gate right where I would drive in because they would not let their young pastor walk through this day without knowing their support. They're culture shapers. They were culture shapers that day. The civil rights marchers, you know, they used to lock arms and sing. They'd lock arms and they would march and they would sing, I will overcome, right? I will overcome someday. Is that what they sang? Now, what did they sing? We, we, the power of we. There's nothing like the church. Um, If we are not family, then we are not the church and we are not beautiful. And last, and let me close with this, this is a beautiful mission. The church is beautiful when it's on mission, right? When 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 it's not about itself, right? When it's about the glory of God and the good of others. That's what the Bible says. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what it's about, not love yourself. It's not people who come to church for themselves. They come for, the, for God and for, and for their community. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Our mission is to bring the healing love of Jesus to broken people in broken places. And having tasted of the grace of God, we're now the distributors of that grace. So the church is on mission when it loves its neighbors, when it loves its community. Have you noticed Citrus County has a lot of whiners? You, maybe you don't know that. Maybe you don't read the Chronicle. Um, people love to, uh, get, people love, they're knocking down the trees everywhere. All our county commissioners are idiots. The sheriff just wants more money. There's car washes, more car washes, too many car washes. They spent $100,000 on monkeys in the Homosassa River, on Monkey Island. We got people who are homeless. They're housing monkeys in a $100,000 condo. But you know, Jesus, Jesus Church doesn't have time to whine because they're loving their neighbors by doing surgery and and constructing houses and designing boats and running pharmacies. And one couple in our church is building a miniature golf course. They're opening um, businesses and eateries and teaching school and repairing cars and doing physical therapy. We got too much work to do to love our neighbors to sit around whining, right? We got too much to do. We are on mission through our vocations, but we're also on mission when we care for the widow and the poor and the migrant and the broken because Jesus loves them. You know what Jesus said? When you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind in Luke chapter 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Jesus has such a heart for those who are the downtrodden, the nobodies, right? So Seven Rivers is never more beautiful than when our hands are dirty with hurricane relief. When the DR team's backs are sore from building another ramp. Last week, our disaster relief team introduced me to a woman who hadn't been out of her house for two years out of her trailer until they came and built her a ramp that she could escape her house and she came straight to church. Beauty. Beauty all around us. Our our church is never more beautiful than when volunteers do VBS or camp for New Horizons folks or when a deacon in our church buys a house for a a widow's house. She has no money, but he buys her house, lives or live in it for nothing and gives her all that money, uh, overpays for her house so she'll have all she'll need until she perishes. It's beautiful. 
It's beautiful when we love our community. We love our neighbors. So it was some years ago that I read about a little boy named Dax Locke. Dax, uh, a beautiful little boy, um, was sick um, for so many months of his first year of life. Doctors, uh, just uh, pediatricians said uh, he would get over it. Uh, But he didn't. They took him to St. Luke's eventually in Memphis. And he was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. They gave him uh, chemotherapy. uh, But the cancer came back. They gave him the stem cells of his mother's. The cancer came back. They gave him the stem cells of his father. The cancer came back. The cancer could not be defeated. And so finally St. Luke said to take your son home. Uh, and enjoy uh, together as best you can the few weeks you have left. It was October. And so they got a crazy idea. They said, the doctor said he won't make it till Christmas. So they said, let's celebrate Christmas um, now in October. It was in Washington, Illinois. It's a little town outside Peoria. And uh, so they put up a Christmas tree in their house and they put up lights and they decorated the house just like Christmas. This is a newly wed young couple, their first little baby. Uh, they, they set up for Christmas. They started to celebrate Christmas. The neighbors saw it. And of course they said a little early, you know, and uh, they explained, so you know what the neighbors did? They decorated their house for Christmas then too. Then did the next neighbors, then did the next neighbors, then all the neighbors decorated for Christmas. But then the word got around town, you know what? People all over towns decorated their house in October for Christmas. And they put lights up and they spelled the name Dax in their street lights. Do you know that the city put up all their Christmas lights in October? The parks all uh, put out all their Christmas decorations all out in the town. They had the Christmas parade in October for a little sick boy. And his heartbroken parents, the whole community said, we're with you. Little did I know that my wife and I would experience that same thing. When our little daughter got a brain tumor just three and a half years ago, and we would not have made it through that ordeal if it weren't for you. If it weren't for our community, And her church community in Texas, bearing her burden, carrying us. We all long to be a part. That story about that little boy, it's so beautiful. We all long for beautiful community. 40 years ago, Diane and I asked God to create a beautiful community. And he has. Thank you, Seven Rivers Church. I was pastor here for a long time. I didn't even get the gospel myself, but you love me right into the gospel. I was a pastor here and and I was a relational retard. (laughs) And you loved me, taught me how to love other people. I was a pastor here and I didn't love others. I didn't love poor and broken and needy people. But you showed me how. I have been transformed by you, Jesus, beautiful community. I owe you so much. Thank you. Let's pray.
Father. Father, the, Father, the kindness of uh, this church is abounding. Um, they love so well. And every one of us knows it's because you've loved us so well. And we honor you and we thank you and we give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.